spinning back to the open side. Karim Bete, Optical here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host, Ando. With me is Lockie, and we have a special guest, Mitch Rev Evans. And tonight we will be covering Aussies Abroad slash news, just very, very briefly. A bit quick quarter final review, which will actually not be that quick. It's going to be the main meat and veg of what we talk about before we get into the locker room. Look, I can't go any further. Uh, Lockie, how are you? Mate, very, very well. Uh, tough weekend for Super Rugby on the Reds Frontier. It's mm-hmm. nice to see a familiar Maroon jersey on the screen as well with me, though. And Rev. Um, but very happy man up in Queensland. Our school season has finally ended, so my coaching duties for the year are done and dusted. I'll have Saturdays back to absorb even more rugby. So that's our lot in life at the moment. And did you Rev, guys get a you, win? Mate? Did you guys get a win? Uh, no, we didn't. We okay. didn't, unfortunately. We finished up with just the one win for the season, which mm-hmm. was better than last season. So baby steps for our boys. Onwards uh, and upwards. into year 12 next year. Absolutely. Mate. Onwards and upwards. Rev, how are you, my friend? Long time no see. Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, it has been a while. I had to dust off the mics, literally. It was um, a bit of a shambles in here getting the studio ready. But um, yeah, really good. It's, um, it's always good to chat about rugby. And, and I think seeing... Uh, Twitter updates, having to type it all out. It's just too time-consuming. So I'm glad you gave me the opportunity. I could come in and just sort of vent for an hour about all things rugby (laughs) that I've missed out in the last year or so. Well, mate, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on. And it's actually, boys, the rare time that the Waratahs fans are outnumbered on this podcast. So currently, I have on the video that's available on YouTube for you all, uh, two people wearing Reds gear. And I'm here flying my Waratahs jersey loud and proud. Um, Lockie, how does it feel now to finally have uh, a friend and to have a compatriot? (laughs) Well, it's nice to have some common sense in the room. That's what's been lacking these past few weeks, I've noticed. And I I won't try and uh, hoodwink the listeners. We did see the quick change before we started recording, the late (laughs) Moritaz jersey call up. So let's not fly the flag too high. But, mate, it is a pleasure, a pleasure to have more Queenslanders on board. Brilliant. Well, why don't we move on? As always, we have two simple calls to action. Firstly, join our Discord channel to be a part of the best Australian rugby community going around. The link is on any of our social media profiles. And lastly, please consider going to ko-fi.com slash pickanddriverugby and supporting us with a one-off or monthly payment. Every bit counts. And we thank you so very, very much. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, let's head on into the Aussies Abroad slash news and then our quarter final review. Let's go. Back into it and very quickly with our Aussies abroad because there's not much doing outside of our borders. We've got uh, Wallaroo legend all-round good girl Laurie Kramer. Her Exeter Chiefs are through to the Premier 15s final over in the UK. They got a win over Sarries in their semi-final and Laurie's been floating in and out of that starting team as a fullback as a wing option and we're hoping to see her bring home a bit of silverware. Uh, for the Wallaroos girls ahead of their pack four season coming up. So big shout out to her. And sticking across in Europe, top 14 final is this weekend. Unsurprisingly, it's Toulouse v La Rochelle. So Toulouse, Aussie of note, Richie Arnold, famously not Rory Arnold. He's in the mix in the second row and he'll be up against Will Skelton, everyone's favourite enormous overseas pick. So I know Eddie Jones will be up late watching. I probably won't be. 
uh, but worth keeping an eye on more for injury's sake than anything else. We'd love to see uh, Big Will available for World Cup time. So uh, if you're in a French time zone, keep an eye out for the top 14 final. That should be a cracker too. And that wraps up a short and sweet one, Ando. Easy, mate. Well, let's jump into the quarterfinal review. So obviously, we are at the finals round of the Super Rugby Pacific 2023 season. And whether or not you like or hate the fact that the top eight out of 12 go through into the finals, it has served up some mouth-watering games, I think. Uh, some really, really entertaining rugby across, at the very least, two of the four games um, were incredibly good. Unfortunately, Matars were not one of them. So let's quickly run through the results. So to start with, we had the Blues spanking the Waratahs 41 to 12. They never really looked in it despite Ned Hannigan scoring the first try and just reaffirming the deep-seated love that I have for that man. The Chiefs then ran home a very, very close game, 29 to 20 against the Reds. And we'll go into that game in a fair bit of detail, I think, with two Reds fans here on the pod before the Crusaders romped home 49 to 8 against the Fijian and Drua. And the Brumbies capped off, uh, well, basically saved Australian rugby in a way from some pretty embarrassing uh, blushes, having one team at least go through into the semis, uh, coming home against the Hurricanes 37 to 33 in what was, um, from New Zealand people, pretty contentious circumstances, although most Aussie fans think that it it was pretty clear cut. So before we get into any of that drama, I thought I'd just ask a really simple question. And Rev, I'll throw this softball to you. Were any of the results this weekend unexpected? I don't think so. Um, in terms of just the win-loss, I, I don't think uh, there was any of it that crazy. Obviously, the Brumbies Hurricanes was 50-50. I think there were a lot of people that thought they could go either way. But most people expected the eventual winners to win. Um, maybe just the matter of some of the, the victories came about a little bit differently. Um, definitely one of the score lines sticks out um, as being probably upsetting for... Um, I guess the Fijian fans, if you spoke about them, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that was quite a big loss. The Reds match, obviously, I, I didn't think they were going to win as a diehard fan, but they came very close and, you know, looked incredibly, um, you know, competitive. But just that result, I think there were a lot of people that had them probably losing by 20 to 30. So, yeah, no surprise results. But the matches threw up plenty of things we could talk about and plenty of great surprises, which is awesome. Yeah, brilliant. And Lockie, in terms of performances across the weekend, was there a standout surprise in terms of high quality or low quality performance versus what you were expecting of the game? Not particularly. I think we probably saw, as Rev mentioned, the Reds punching above most expectations uh, for an eighth seed team coming in with a five and nine record. So to go back over to New Zealand and have a crack like that was above expectations, we would say. Uh, the Tars and the Drew are probably slipping below what we would like to have seen. We'll get into it a bit later on with the travelling record for those teams, but especially for the Tars in six, you'd really be wanting that to justify the quarterfinal system as it stands. Your sixth-ranked team to be pushing third a little tighter. But overall, I think we're treated to really good quarterfinals, as you mentioned, and that in itself, for now, is probably justifying that top eight. Yep, fair enough. Well, why don't we jump on into the first game of the weekend, which was the Blues versus the Waratahs. Blues 41, Waratahs 12. Got all the details and general stats up on the screen for you if you're watching along at home or wherever you watch the videos. I personally 
never had any confidence that we would get the win in Auckland. I mean, there's always that little hope that you harbour, hope springs eternal, but I didn't really think <laughs> it would actually get done. Um, Lockie, what did the Blues bring to this game that was just too much for the Tars to handle? I think they brought speed and quick hands. You saw right from the outset, even though it did cost them an early try with some errors, in that first two minutes, the Blues were very keen to spin it wide and spin it early. So you've got all that pace out wide, all the talent in the world. We've talked to death about Mark Talia and your Rico Ioannis and your Caleb Clark, who wasn't even on deck for this game. They had AJ Lamb, but they still looked immediately to push their advantage in the outside backs. And I think at the end of the day, the Blues probably ran the Tars off the park in that regard. Yeah, especially exploiting some uh, changes within the outside centres and the back three as well for the Waratahs. You look at the run metres, 688 to 382. It just shows that uh, attacking intent that we love to see from the Blues when they're able to pull it off and just boss the opposition. Rev, could you have seen this result going differently? Is there anything the Tars could have done in your mind with the players they had available to actually disrupt and upset the Blues rhythm? I think one of the things that stood out was looking at the Blues, their top carries were all their strike weapons. Like, they got the balls into Satudu's hands. Mark Delea carried the ball more than anybody else. And their centre pairing, like, they both, I think, would have had 10 carries each at least. Him and Yuani just sort of showed up everywhere. For the Waratahs, I just kept thinking, why are we not getting the ball into the hands of um, Marky Mark? Why are we not getting the hands into, especially in the first half, Parisi, obviously coming off, um, you know, and only playing the 40 minutes. But we just needed a little bit more... I think, ball in the hands of those players because you saw when they did have the opportunities, they were actually quite damaging. Um, yeah, in, in terms of what they could have done differently, I'd, I'm sort of with you, Endo. I don't think the Waratahs were ever going to win this. Um, in finals 40 in New Zealand, the Blues are a really strong team, even though they haven't really looked at, you know, throughout the whole of the year. Uh, and the Waratahs, despite a really uh, promising squad on paper, they just haven't really delivered on that promise this year. So um, I think... It's disappointing that the margin blew out to what it was, but there wasn't really anything observable they were going to do differently to get the win. Yeah, I think for me, a big part of the fear that I had was when I saw the lineup, I just really wasn't confident that the squad actually mm. were able to get this done with a lot of the changes that they had across the 23. So at the at the start of the year, there was a bit of, um, at least for me, when I was, when I was saying it, a bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek year of the tar, uh, banter, just just kind of laughing around, at least talking about um, hopes for an improved performance in 2023. I never really thought we'd get it done, but it was it was just a bit of a joke to get to get in behind. And clearly, it has ended in a whimper with a loss to Moana and now getting bundled out pretty comprehensively within the quarterfinals. Uh, Lockie, where did it go wrong for this team in 2023? And is it too simple to say that they hyped up the opening game against the Brumbies too much and never really recovered from there? No, I'd say that's pretty much a bang on assessment. So much has been made already of that pre-game hype heading into round one and saying, we're going to win this, we're going to sell out Allianz. And from there, it almost looked like the Taj have gone through 2023 without their mojo. It's an Austin Powers situation. They've rolled on through. They've had a couple of good moments, but in reality, we haven't seen them fully firing. Yes, they had some good wins. They scrapped it through the Highlanders and showed some grit. They got that massive win over the Reds up in Townsville, which I thought could have been a moment for them to completely turn things around. But, I mean, to go out like they did with the Crusaders and Moana and then the quarterfinals this way, 
I would say, unfortunately, they've probably regressed from last year and the enthusiasm that we saw heading into 2023 is fizzled. And Rev, where do you see that regression coming from? Is it a case of like injuries to key players? Because we're seeing Fichetti and Parisi and Jorgensen. Though the fact that Jorgensen is a key player as well is somewhat ridiculous. Um, Edmed also having significant periods out. I mean, what what do you kind of pin some of the reasons on? I, I think back to round one and the team on paper, all the hype, they started so incredibly well, I thought, that match against the Brumbies. And you were about 23 minutes in, Angus Bell goes down. I think there is the Tars' best player. Well, you know, Michael Hooper maybe, obviously, aside. But there's one of the Tars' best and most influential players with quite a big gap between him and his um, replacement. It just seemed like a, such a massive loss to try and overcome. And that was all off the back of before round one. Kurtley Beal doesn't make it to the first game because of off-field indiscretions. We've got issues with, I guess, depth in a few areas once injuries hit. Um, ben Donaldson was in the worst form of any Australian fly half, and yet you couldn't replace him despite having all these great options because Edmund and Harrison were injured. It just seemed like whenever injuries did occur, they just happened at really unfortunate positions and timing. Um, but yeah, to me, not having Angus Bell, he's such a point of difference. And I, I look back to the 2022 um, red season where we didn't have Tupo or O'Connor for the New Zealand leg of the games mm-hmm. and think what a difference that could have made. Angus Bell's... He's five to ten points sometimes in games. He's so influential and he's such a key player that I just think, you know, not having him for the entire season, bar 20 good minutes, um, is massive and probably wasn't spoken about enough. Yep. Well, I think um, let's not kind of dissect this too much more because, like we said earlier, it was a comprehensive win to the Blues and well done to them. I mean, when you've got nine clean breaks to three, 35 defenders beaten to 12, um, the possession stats are just through the roof, metres run. It's just It just shows the dominance that they had as a team over the Waratahs. I think for me... I'm pretty much happy to just kind of erase this one from the memory <laughs> and maybe in a few weeks' time um, see what kind of reflections we can do on the season as a whole as a bit of a recap. But why don't we move into a game that was genuinely entertaining and came down to the wire. It was the Chiefs versus the Reds. And uh, I don't know how you two were able to kind of... Um, get through this game with all your fingernails intact. It must have been incredibly exciting. Rev, what were your immediate reactions at the conclusion of this 29-20 to 20 loss away from home? I think pride. I think it was such an impressive performance. Um, and it, it sucks because the Australian narrative for so long is always like, you know, close losses or, you know, really hard fought in defeat. Um there was something really impressive. Like the match from the outset had so much to like, no matter what kind of style of rugby you're into. There were, you know, shots at goal. There's the most penalty attempts that the Chiefs have, you know, taken against an Australian side um, in quite some time. It was it was really gritty and yet really exciting at the same time. It was, yeah, it, it was a really immense performance and maybe the best performance of the year for the Reds, um, save for their winning against the Chiefs earlier in the season. So watching the game, knowing the result, knowing that um, we weren't going to win, but just seeing how awesome so many different individuals were, um, how good we looked as a team. Yeah, it was just awesome. So it's actually got me very excited for 2024, uh, which is quite a long way away, but um, there's a lot to like from that performance. Uh, Lucky for Rev, it's pride. 
for you? Blueprint. I'd say it's a blueprint for other teams, including the Brumbies, as to how to take down the Chiefs for later in the year. As Rev mentioned, it was quite similar uh, in the output compared to that regular season game where the Reds went over to New Plymouth and got the win. And it's the exact same performance. They didn't do anything differently. And this has been observed by a lot of media outlets, but they came in with the same game plan. It was intense defensive pressure through line speed and physicality and just essentially try and blow the Chiefs off the park in defence. And that's what they did. They came out and they were jamming people left, right and centre. We mentioned before the broadcast, people like Filippo Dunguna, who aren't noted defenders in the outside backs, coming back into 13 and jamming blokes left, right and centre. And that attitude was the difference again. So it really does lay a, a blueprint for other teams to come forward now and push the Chiefs, who have been the form team. And realistically, the Reds have been the only ones who've actually rattled them all year. And that comes down to that line speed. So yep. yeah, I'd say blueprint. It was a really interesting um, selection decision when Dunguni was chosen at 13 over Fluke, who slotted in at... I think it was 11, but either way, in the wing. And that that was an interesting choice. Rev, what did you make of that before the game? And then how do you reflect on it now that the game has been played? <laughs> I think in the group chat uh, with quite a lot of Reds fans, there was talk around uh, dumbest decision I've ever seen. Um, what was Thorne thinking? Um, <laughs> can we ship him off now? Like It didn't get that drastic, but there was definitely a feel of that isn't the right call. Like when Fluke wasn't available, sure, slot him in, but just switch them over and they've got their natural positions. And um, Thorne shows that he knows more about rugby than, you know, a couple of avid punters who who like to watch it from the couch. Um, it, it was a great decision in hindsight, wasn't it? Because defensively they were so unreal in their set positions. Fluke was so safe. Everything he did was just textbook, whether it be tackling or kicking. Dungunu was leveling people like it was, you know, what he was there to do. And I, I would want to see more of it. It was um, It was unreal. One of the things that really stands out to me is you look at the stats for this game in terms of like 833 run meters to 595, uh, 49 to 46 kicks from hand. I mean, that, those are massive numbers all around. It just shows the attacking intent that both teams had to receive the ball and then run it back at the opposition. Um, the Chiefs had 10 clean breaks to three, 30 defenders beaten to 19. Those clean break and defenders beaten stats are actually somewhat similar to the Waratah. Uh, Blues stats. But the difference was that the Reds' scramble defense was so impressive and their ability to keep working hard, even when it looked like the opportunity was gone, just showed that that pride and that willingness that they had as a team to come together to, uh, yeah, basically stay in the fight. And I mean, Lockie, the first three kicks for goal for Tom Liner unfortunately leaving seven points out on the field. How would the game have been different uh, considering you're leading at the 70th minute? Oh, it would have been nice, but the margin's still two if you take it as a full 29 for the Chiefs. I mean, yeah. the Chiefs, to their credit, were fantastic in the back end of that game, being able to grind forward. And when I was watching the game for the second time, because I got too excited to watch it again, and specifically looked at where the Reds were going wrong in the second half. And it wasn't that they were doing anything wrong. There was one bloke from the Chiefs who just decided to take the game by the scruff of the neck and win himself. And that man was Brody Retallick. So Brody Retallick, with about 20 minutes to go, just decides that he would like to now play the game. 
So he grabs himself, I think, three turnovers in the last 20 minutes. He finishes up with 13 carries, 15 tackles for the game, and he puts together that line break assist that sends Soa Cooler over with five minutes to go. And we see it all season, you know, people putting their hands up, you know, I'm the next big thing. You know, everyone's talking about the next locks or rising stars, but Brody Britallic has been arguably the best second rower for the better part of a decade, and he keeps getting better. So I came away from that game thinking, that's one man who won it for the Chiefs there. It was unbelievable. Rev, a Reds player that stepped up to the challenge in New Zealand, who would you rate? Yeah, it's tough because there were so many that I think were great throughout the season and delivered great performances, like a McBride or a Tate or a Harry Wilson. But one that probably stood out is Sefan Garci, just because I don't think he's ever really been renowned as a great scrummager or even that fantastic around the park. He was just a bit of a, a journeyman. Like he's popped up at the Highlanders and he's been at the Rebels and he's played for a heap of NPC teams. But he delivered like some awesome scrummaging moments. He really held his own against what was, you know, the best scrum of the competition. Um, a couple of All Blacks in there, a couple of, well, and Irish international as well. But I just thought from someone who was nearly a bit of a surprise pick into the squad at all, just it was injury replacements. We needed people desperately. He turned out a fantastic performance. Everything that I saw him do, I was like, this is an elite performance for a tight head prop to come over to Chiefs where he's, he's in one of the you know dodgiest scrums of the season um, to come up against the best and just to hold his own and dominate. I, I really was impressed with Seth. Awesome. So that's a shout out for Seth. And Lockie, who's your shout? My shout would be uh, Matty Fazler again. I yeah. was amazed with his consistency throughout the season and similar to Seth Fagasi, coming in largely unheralded. And he's made the two his own now. I know people are talking about him for Wallaby Stocks, and I don't rate it just yet, but he's becoming one of the form Super Rugby hookers. And again, he goes through set pieces, solid. There are a couple of wobbles at line-out time for the Reds, but around the park, Matt Fazler's excellent as well and finished up with 25 tackles without a miss. So he's worth his weight in gold at this point. He also has, um, in my mind, the best haircut and facial hair combo of any hooker within Australian rugby. He's got a moustache you could set your watch to. It is that tight. So very, very much enjoyed. For me, uh, my low-hanging fruit that I'm going to pick is Suni Sui Vunavalu. And it's like it's quite a simple pick. I mean, he scored two tries, so you always have to rate that. But it seemed like it was one of his more involved performances th- from the season. And... Maybe we're starting to see some of his growth and development into the 15-man game when we've it's been so heavily interrupted by injury and his form this season hasn't been great. He did show a really, really strong performance, I thought, this weekend. Um, well, what I now want to ask, and Rev, I'm going to direct this one to you because you kind of have spoken about looking ahead for 2024, but I actually want to pause you, get you to reflect on 2023. Getting knocked out in the quarterfinals, so basically a low tables finish, um, finishing eighth and then getting knocked out. Is that kind of the best you could have hoped for in 2023, considering the injuries, particularly in the front row? I think even with uh, those injuries, I had hopes that we'd finish uh, sixth or seventh. Um, Looking at the teams, Brumbies were just better on paper and the the four New Zealand teams that are above us 
I think we're all deservingly above us as well. I thought the two big things were probably what would come down to is that uh, game in Townsville against the Waratahs. Mm. Um, I thought that was going to be really key. In the preseason, I thought the Tars were better. Um, but throughout the season, I thought, no, they've been pretty average as well. Like, neither team's really hit their straps. So, to me, that was a really important battle for who was going to be the sixth team. And the, the Tars deservedly won that. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's about as expected. I, I would have liked us to sneak seventh or sixth at least. So, I, I, I hate the fact that, you know, you know they, they put these performances together in Kiwi sides, but then the only other wins are against... What was a Moana, Fiji at home, which was just scraped through, and and then the Force, yep. and winning against the Force that, that counts for nothing. I could beat the Force. <laughs> Strong words. Them's them's fighting I hate words. The force. <laughs> I hate the Force. <laughs> um, Lockie, would you feel a similar kind of expectation for twenty twenty three and where the Reds have ended up? Bang on. I didn't see us finishing higher than sixth. Really, especially after uh, Rev mentioned the Tars game, but also the Brumbies game up at Suncorp when they came up and put, um, I think, 50 on us or something yeah. like that. I mean, they really, really stormed through, and that was a bit of a reality check for Reds, public players, and fans at that point, thinking where we can go with this season with, you know, no Tupo. I mean, everyone's got their injuries, but that's your big injury if you're a Reds fan going a season without your marquee player. So I think realistically, yeah, quarterfinals and making an account for yourself is great, but the end of our regular season, um, barring that Chiefs game, was what really got me, you know, against the Blues at home, sort of fizzing out, the Drewer. I mean, there were opportunities there for us to climb the ladder, maybe even if we didn't deserve it, and those are the games that we need to be winning and taking next year if we want to push for a top six or, you know, aspirationally a semifinal berth in the near future. I want to just add in there a quick little thing moving forward as we wrap up this um, Reds review. You know how there'd been that chat about James O'Connor moving over to the force a couple of weeks ago? Um, have you guys seen his Instagram post from today? I have not. Uh, no. No. Okay. Ooh. So he's he's done a bit of, bit of a review of 2023 and it's a personal reflection on the growth and the challenges and the difficulties he's had and grown as a person um but he says watch this space i promise you next season in the maroon is going to be special now whether that just means special for reds rugby whether that means special for me as a reds player in the maroon um, I'm taking it to believe to be that latter, and I think that that would be fantastic if he can be hanging around uh, to help provide some further growth. He, he's been fantastic at 12 in the latter part of the season. I think he's really hit his straps there, um, particularly with Lino on the inside of him. Uh, Rev, how does that make you feel, the idea that James O'Connor may well be sticking around for another season or two? Uh, to be fair, I, I did think he was sticking around for another year. Um, the force thing I'd never sort of bought into so um i hope he does um but i, I think that's you know kind of needed we need someone to steer liner around um they just don't have experienced heads in the back line um you know with the number of people that they're they're, they're fantastic but the eldest people are in the wings and fullback the centers are quite young the the halfbacks are young so yeah him sticking around would be great for the team um but i mean why would you go to the force 
<laughs> and on that note, why don't we head across into the Crusaders versus Fijian and Drua. If we're talking about teams that can't travel, then we have an excellent example of that here with the Fijian and Drua, who went down 49-8 to eight in what would have been an incredibly disappointing performance for, for them as a team, but also for their fans. I think it was three tries to nil within the first kind of 20 minutes or 20 or so minutes of the game. Um, it was an absolute shellacking. Uh, Lockie, did this surprise you in any way, the scale of the defeat? I mean, everybody was obviously expecting the Crusaders to win. Honestly, it didn't. I ha- very happily will reflect back to last uh, week's pod where I tipped them by three, which is very much a <laughs> from the heart, from the heart moment from me. Uh, in retrospect, a shocking idea. Uh, you've got Crusaders who've never lost a home final, uh, who are stinging from losing to the Drua earlier in the season, and uh, just the Drua's inability to play away from home, uh, barring what a round one win against Moana at Mount Smart, which is call it a neutral event, really. Mm-hmm. They just they were never going to win this. And as soon as the tries start piling and you see that set piece, that rolling more click into gear, I mean, it could have been more, honestly. So yeah. I'm, gl- I'm glad for the Drewers sake that they were able to get a try. They got the intercept through Rabatamunda. Big Swanee, you can have a cheer about that, but I don't think that was ever going to be at risk of a Crusaders loss at home. No, I don't think so either. Rev, what do you think Mick Byrne can do to turn around the travelling fortunes of the Drewers? I mean, they're Jekyll and Hyde in terms of home and away performances. Yeah, it's interesting. I do wonder, just because they're a more cash-strapped union, like just... How much worse are the travelling conditions in terms of flights? Are they all stuck in economy despite being these large humans? Do the accommodation they actually get into, um, is it not as ritzy? Do they have uh, not quite as many of the creature comforts that others are afforded? But one of the other big things is they are still a very new team. And one of the things that Byrne pointed out um, in a previous discussion was just they're getting used to the whole notion of travelling. Like these guys Mm. have played maybe a bit of NRC and they've done bits and pieces if they've been in the flying Fijian squad. But for a lot of the guys, they are not really used to sort of jet setting around the world. They're very used to, you know, the families they're from and, you know, playing in that specific area, maybe going to a neutral venue for a competition or a tournament. But um, it's still a massive challenge. And I think what they've worked out is, hey, if we really nail the home stuff, we're still making it to the finals. We've just got to tidy up these key areas. So this year has been massive for Fiji. I don't think any team's had a bigger year than, the PGN and Drew and just what they've done to get to this point and really deservedly make the finals. It is a massive shame that the score doesn't reflect the effort, but um, looking at it in hindsight, I think Bern will be able to say that there's a lot that he can work with in getting this team to even even better position next year. Agreed. Lockie, anything to add on that particular note? No, and it's bang on to say that the Drew are the biggest performance of the year. I think we can all appreciate that for a franchise that for super level is in just their second season, this is a massive achievement to get past the likes of the Highlanders, the Force, the Rebels. I know Moana has their own struggles, but those are three established clubs that the Drew have put to the sword over the year and gone, up. Nah, we're going over and we're getting into a finals in seventh. So I think we can all agree that seeing the Drew in the finals is one of the best possible outcomes for Super Rugby Pacific as an entity. Sticking with you then, Lockie, the injury list for the Crusaders was absolutely massive. Um, they finished the game with only 13 players on the park. Mawanga, Zach Gallagher, Ethan Blackadder, uh, both or all three of them couldn't finish the game. Sam Whitelock continues to be out with an Achilles injury. 
they, despite winning three of three this year against the Blues, do you think they're going to be able to make it four from four next week? Or do you think the injuries are going to uh, come home to roost? You just got to look at Chris Adder's record, don't you? I mean, they they don't they don't lose at home. They're like the Drew before the Drew were around. Um, the the depth is ridiculous there, and we can talk about it all day. But I mean, Fergus Burke did more than an admirable job in that playmaker role. They've got stacks waiting in the wings, and playmakers who aren't necessarily in the ten jersey continue to step up. You had Willie Hines running a good ship there. You've got Noah Hotham who's available in the nine jersey as well for no bitch Drummond. I mean, people continually step up through that Crusaders system. So while I think the Blues probably have a better shot in their absence, especially Whitelock, I mean, he's the heart and soul of that team. But the Crusaders at home is hard to tip against. Yep, well said. Uh, Rev, any final comments on this game before we move on to the one shining light of Australian rugby this weekend? (laughs) Just, I, I guess, a bit of a thought for the draw because... I saw the score before watching the match and I thought, oh man, they just got pumped. But watching it for 70% of the game, it's really competitive and really even. I think at the start, they sort of got you know, punched in the nose a little bit by the Crusaders with just the forwards barraging them constantly. It was really hard to defend. So um, I think when you look at the tries that the Crusaders score, how often do they score seven tries and only one of them stood outside back? Like, it's pretty impressive that all the tries are from forwards or a halfback. Like, it was all done around the ruck. It was all really just, like, these little offloads or short passes. Um, and I think it played into Fiji's... Oh, sorry, that it, it worked against Fiji in the sense that they took away their strengths and just completely nullified. So, um, if you haven't seen the game, don't let the score sort of um, deter. It was a really good watch. Yep. Very well said. Well, why don't we move now into the Brumbies versus the Hurricanes game? And that was a nail-biter, 37-33, to with the Brumbies starting the game very strong um, after an opening try to Kenny Naholo. And then Ollie Satsford and Jack Debrasini and Len Ikatau brought it back within the first half to make it three tries to one net to end out the half. Look, we, we just have to start with this. And, and Rev, you like a bit of a rant and you like a bit of a dig at Kiwi. Kiwi fans in opposition, try or no try? No try. No try. It wasn't it's even banned. close. No. Well, the thing is, Nick Berry is right next to the the situation and sees that the ball is not on the ground, otherwise he would have awarded the try. But because he wants more clarity, he says, hey, you guys have all the cameras, all the angles. Um, can you just check for me if there's any evidence? Please overturn it, but I can't see it grounded and I'm right next to it. They say, you know, goes up there there's all these stills that have been floating around twitter with people claiming whatever i haven't seen a single thing with the ball on the ground and the tmo couldn't either so um regardless of what Artie thinks or what the new zealand fans think there's no evidence of the ball on the ground so it's no try yep lucky totally agree there's no conclusive evidence mm-hmm. to overturn an on-field decision of yep. held up so you can't get you can't complain about it i mean Yes, Artie Sevilla played brilliantly, and I'm sure he's one of the most passionate blokes going around. We all are about our rugby, but that's Nick Berry's call. He's on the spot, and he made the right one. I really enjoy the fact that so many of the Kiwi fans who are putting this forward aren't able to kind of own the fact that 
in the play right before that, um, Jordy Barrett had the opportunity to kind of play it out wide and it was just basically an open try scoring opportunity. But he tucked the ball under his arm, went in, got tackled and brought up short. And so it's just, it's one of those situations where if it happened against uh, the, a team that I supported, I would be feeling pretty salty about it and, and I'd be pretty frustrated at how close we came. But at the same time, you have to be better than those 50-50 opportunities. And when you've left clear points begging with one of your most experienced players making the wrong decision in a moment, you can't be blaming a referee for doing the exact correct protocol and making the correct decision as far as what he could see at every step along the way. There's nothing wrong with the process, nothing wrong with the decision. It's all about the team actually earlier making the right decision so they didn't have to be put into that spot. So that's my read on the whole situation anyway. Um, you've got to be better to take the referee out of those situations. But look, I say that now when it's not the Waratahs who are having a call against them. So <laughs> uh, I know it'll be different if it was my team, but hey, that's all what uh, the joys of rugby. So... Let's actually get into the match itself. Um, I thought that the Brumbies actually had, I'm not going to say control of the game. They were really, really impressive within the first half, particularly. But one of the things that really seemed to be their undoing and brought the Canes back into it was their propensity to be giving away repeat penalties to allow the Canes to kind of march down the field. Um, Lockie, is that a fair assessment? What was it that enabled the Canes to get back into the game within the second half? Whatever was said at halftime, I reckon played played a big role because that forty to sixty minute period, the Canes just dominated. They flipped the script completely. I mean, Artie Savier comes out, scores a try, essentially by himself. Takes um, who was it, Jerome Humes, for a ride, goes five ten meters with him on his ankles, and goes over. I mean, the man's a machine. But you're right about the penalties. I think the Brumbies almost kicked themselves out of this game, um, and it could have been disastrous as a result of that. But you know, those tight margins it comes down to. And we're lucky that, you know, Tom Wright's not throwing the ball in someone's face close to his own goal line. Otherwise, it probably <laughs> goes the other way. That, that was an interesting one, wasn't it? It showed, showed a fair bit of uh, maybe some of the chat about him not being able to score tries against New Zealand opposition had been getting to him. But, Rev, what... What was it, do you think, in that second half? I mean, we've, we've heard Lockie's thoughts. What do you think was it that enabled the Canes to get back into this match? It seemed a little bit, and we've mentioned the penalties, but a bit of inaccuracy or unsureness around the ruck in particular. They really struggle with a breakdown in reading, at least for that 40 to 65-ish minute mark, when they could go for it, when they couldn't. Um, it was sometimes seemed a little bit unclear about what they would let slide. Um, you'd see Nick White get pushed off the ball when mm. it seemed like he was sort of in possession of it. It seemed like when they tried to do the same, um, that did get pinged. It, there just seemed like a few moments where they were really going for that 50-50 call and it didn't quite pay off. So I think that was probably one of the big things which they really cleaned up towards the back end. And again, that's also probably less likely to get picked up in those last uh, few minutes. But th- that to me seemed the big one. Um the other thing I guess that stood out a bit while watching the game was just some of the choices that the Hurricanes made. You so rarely see teams from New Zealand accumulate points through penalties. And you could see that like from the outset, they're happy to do that. They, they knew they needed to keep points going to, uh, I guess, stay in the game. And they did such a good job of, I think, 
not even milking, but just really making the ref um, aware of everything that was going on with the ruck. Every time you could see players pointing and just gesturing, Artie did a really good job of getting and speaking to Barry on multiple occasions, just saying, hey, look, they've done this or that. Every stoppage, you could see them interacting. I just thought there are a few things like that that were really clever. And it showed that they could fight and claw it back and make it a really tight game to finish. Yeah. Is Artie, and it's a pretty outrageous statement in a way, but is Artie the best player individually within Super Rugby? Uh, Lockie, do you reckon? Probably on par with Talia for the season, I'd say. But, I mean, Artie Savi has been carrying that Hurricane side for a couple of years now. He's outrageous. He slots in anywhere across 6, 7, 8. He'll pull off ridiculous tackles, you know, dummy gate from a couple of years ago where he's tossing them all around the place or not for that matter. Um, he is an individually brilliant player and I don't think the Hurricanes go any extent of the depth they've gone in this season without him. He's been he's been brilliant, frankly. Rev, who would you rate uh, equal to or above Artie Sevilla if you could name two or three and you can't name any Reds player? <laughs> He made it very hard with that last qualifier. <laughs> um, no, I, I was going to say, I don't think Artie Sevilla was the best player on the park uh, last night. I think he's so unheralded, and I, I get in trouble all the time for saying how good he is, but Lenny Katow is a freak. Mm. He's such a freak. I think everything he does screams world-class. And it, there's some games that sticks out more than others. Because some games he's a bit more of a Josh Fluke where he just does everything really sandly, and you think... Gee, he's so reliable. I'd love to have him on my team. But he was just a freak of nature. Like, it was one of those games he realised, I've got to really turn it on for, you know, the team because this is a tough ask. We're in knockout footy. I think he's one of those guys that he's not in the highlights real packers each week. But show me a game that's less than 8 out of 10 from him. Mm. He's such a freak. Um, so, to me, Artie Sevilla is great. Yeah, and I, I do really like him as a player. But Lenny Cattell, man, he's good. Um and then, obviously, there's about 25 or 26 Reds players who are also the best. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just <laughs> without naming them, uh, Len Iketel. Len Iketel. Rev, just on, you just go. on Len's stats, sorry, sorry, Ando. I, I pulled up a couple here because I was watching it through the game as well. And you always hear on particularly the Aussie stand commentary, they talk about you know, Len Iketel is the best attacking right-to-left centre in the world. And they put all these <laughs> qualifiers on him yeah. around his, his right-arm fen. And you're thinking, bloody hell, he's one of the best outside centers, period. And yeah. he comes away defensively from this game as well, looking world-class. He had the most turnovers for the game with three. He scores his try. He sets up another one with his try assist. He lays on 17 tackles, I think at about 95% or something ridiculous. And then he's breaking four tackles as well. Yeah. Both sides of the ball, he is one of the best. And if he's not starting in a 13 Wallabies jersey, I'm not here. Yeah, it's. I think it's all of that, and I'm a sucker for it. But his left foot, I love his left foot. <laughs> it's such a beautiful kick. It's like every time I think, oh, they're in a bit of trouble. You know, Lolisio when he's on doesn't have the you know the biggest boot. Debrasini like it's big, but sometimes Ikatau just nails it every time. Man, well, like we talk a lot about Ando's Lonigan and Hannigan obsession, but I think I've got to put Ikatau right up there. He's he might be my man. Just just his left foot particularly. Uh, yeah, just, we'll, his left, but yeah. <laughs> just get a picture of that mounted on the wall. Yeah. 
<laughs> Mate, you look at some of the stats across that game, though, and you've rightly, that's actually where I was going to go before, so thanks for jumping in there, Lockie. But you look at some of the defensive stats of other players across the team. So Mick Frost, 16 tackles, missed two. Uh, Valentini, 17. Pete Samu, 21 tackles and only missed one across the game. It just shows the work rate that so many of the Brumbies, Brumbies players have combined with the accuracy across the whole team. And interestingly, um, you look at uh, Sefa Kautai, who had 13 um, tackles and missed six. He is one of the least experienced players. And so it just shows how the the quality and the experience within the Brumbies team is really stepping up within these big matches. And it just shows the... Um, the, the fact that they've had this team together now for three or four seasons. Uh, these players have been coming through their systems and they're just able to be able to produce big games in the big moments. So what we might do here, um, Rev, was there any particular player or moment within this game that you wanted to highlight or speak to? Lockie, I'll throw the same to you before we probably then start moving on. There was one moment, uh, I guess I'll highlight a, a negative just because I, I thought... Um, this one could have been really damaging. It was the Devin Flanders try mm. where he breaks off from the scrum? It's a really messy scrum. It looks like it should have been pulled up. There's so much going on, but the Brumbies players have a multiple opportunities to try and stop him about sixty or seventy meters out, and he just keeps burning people. Um, to me, when that happened, it blew the score out to the Hurricanes' biggest margin of the night, and I just I had that sense of dread that Australian rugby fans know far too well of just. Oh, it's happening. Oh, that's it. Okay. Oh, it's nice while it lasted. Um, and it was it was negative for the fact that it happened. It was positive that Brumbies overcame it, but it just watching it happen, it just felt so familiar. And to me, that was sort of like yeah, a bit of a pit in the stomach of like, oh man, this game was so good and we just the Brumbies were so dominant, they just let this try happen. So yeah, that, that was probably the moment that stood out. Um, not only for it happening, but for the fact that the Brumbies actually pulled themselves back by the bootstrap and said, no, we're winning this thing. This is our game. Well said. Lucky over to you. Yeah, quickly, just on that exact moment as well, talking about, you know, World Cup and Wallaby time, Tom Wright has another great attacking game, but he just got minced by Flanders. Palm to the head as a covering fullback is not a great look if you're considering yourself a test level. So I'm sure that'll stick in his brain for a little while. Um, I think my moment and player actually all revolves around Jack Debrasini. I thought his first half was really well controlled. Um, he missed a couple of his kicks, but his play, his general play and direction was excellent. He scores himself a really good try, stepping off the left and breaking through the line, and reminds us that that's another really high-quality Super Rugby player within the Australian system, who coincidentally has probably got to that stage by being outside of Australian Super Rugby and cutting his teeth across the pond. So whatever we can do to keep him around and add to that depth, let's get it on board. But the Brumbies don't win that game without Noel Alessio coming off the pine and kicking it from the sideline. Yep. So just another little reminder there that there's another 10 in the conversation. Very well said. Very well said. Well, we might dive straight into the locker room now. And the locker room, for those of you who do not know, is an opportunity where you as the fan have an opportunity to submit questions and comments for us to speak to live on the pod. So, Lockie, I'm going to hand it over to you and starting here with Nick Wilson. Beautiful. Yes, yeah, so we're kicking off with a Wallabies-ish question. 
And it goes a little something like this from Nick Wilson. Eddie previously spoke about the big games against the Kiwi opposition being the ones that matter for all of his selection. So from these three knockout games against Kiwi sides we had this week, who showed enough to give Eddie something to think about and who hurt their Wallabies' chances? Uh, Ando, start off with you, mate. Look, I think for me, my mind just straight away goes to Waratah's players, um, as is natural within the rugby world and what everybody should be doing. But for me, I think that the player who probably... I wonder if Michael Hooper maybe hurt his chances a little bit. And I know that might be contentious, but you actually look at his stats from the game and they were quite poor. He, where was it? Hooper had 16 tackles and missed six of them. And you don't expect that from a player of his quality. He also wasn't as impactful in the carry and in a ruck as I would hope for. Um, I just wonder if, if a question is within Eddie Jones's mind about whether or not Hooper is the starting seven for the Wallabies at this point in time. Um, I'm not saying he will not be picked, but I wonder if that question is coming in based on the last few performances. So he's, he's kind of my pick. Yeah, that's a massive call from a Tars fan. Mm. Well, hey, Rev, how about you? Someone who's gone up and someone who's gone down. Yeah, trying to narrow it to just one who's gone up is hard because I think you could nearly argue any Reds outside back showed something that could excite. And to be honest, I had no Reds outside backs making the, the Wallabies squad. Um, but like Eddie's always harped on about Vinavalu. He gave something to, you know, if anyone questions it, he can say, hey, watch the Chiefs game. It was pretty good. <laughs> um, someone that hurt their chances. It, it's hard to think if it, hurt necessarily but I just Dave Parecki I didn't think stood out in the way that I wanted him to in a week where I thought that Matt Fazler was awesome I thought Lockie Lonergan was really solid I thought Connell McInerney came off the bench was really solid and Parecki is someone who I think is our starting hooker but I just I, I want to see more and Eddie's spoken so much about he wants these big ugly players Parecki is not big He's and he's you know he's quite attractive. I'll give him that. He's not an ugly player either. He's, <laughs> he needs to rough his face off a bit if he wants that Eddie um, tick of approval. So I think Parecki's even if he didn't hurt his chances, there wasn't enough there that I thought yeah he's grabbed this game and said yes Eddie pick me in a week of hookers really delivering. Mm-hmm. Well, that was good. We'll have to move on to Brumby's question now uh, from Ben Vanderlinden. Brumby's need to decide what their strength is and ride that horse all the way home. They looked a bit column A, column B. Top quality sides shut down any attack that's not 100%, and they're now the line out, which has been a little off their best this year. Not much of a question out of it, but, Ando, would you agree that the Brumbies probably need to pick and stick for a strategy at this point? Look, I think they've reached the point where they... um... They, they have enough variety within their game that they can gen- generally adapt it for the opposition that they're playing. So we all know about the mall strength, the line-out strength. I mean, that that's true. Um, I also think that they've developed a, a width and a counter-attacking ability to their game that's only been heightened by Tom Wright being played at 15 because he is a player that won't, 
consistently look to kick return the ball when he takes it at the back as a 15. He'll look to run the ball back and to set up for kind of the next phase's attack. And his his stats have consistently been excellent in terms of meters gained, carries, um, defenders beaten and the like. And so he, he's been doing really, really well within that role. Um, I'm not sure if... I'm not sure if the... Brumbies just need one particular thing. Uh, I, I think what they're going to be able to do quite well against the Chiefs this coming weekend is what the Reds have been trying to do in the matches. Like we mentioned earlier, is that defensive pressure and intensity. And you know that's what the Brumbies have the capacity to bring. So I'm very, very keen to see how this one plays out. Yeah, a lot riding on that Brumbies-Chiefs game for Australian rugby. And the next question actually leads into that nicely. So one for you, Riff, from Wombat. Who do we think is the better 5'8 at the Brumbies? And who starts against the Chiefs? Uh, his thoughts are it's not Lolaseo. What is your take? Yeah, it's really tough because I think the Debrasini and Lolaseo decision was received in our group chat a little similarly to the whole fluke and Dungunu on wing and centre situation. Looking at it before the match, we're like, this is ridiculous. We've got someone who could kick a ball pretty fast seven years ago, now starting over a Wallabies incumbent. What's going on? Um, and yet he delivered, as you said, a fantastic first half and really stable platform for the Brumbies to get the win. So for me, um, I, I think you nearly wanted to see a repeat of last week. They started really well. It was a strong strategy. In Debrasini, you've got someone who can take the ball to the line quite well because it's such a big body. But I think really importantly, what the Reds showed was um, the Chiefs have such a weaponized kicking game. Uh, we saw the kick numbers, but the Chiefs made so many meters with their kicks just because all of their back three can kick. Um, Damian McKenzie's obviously a great kicker. They've got some big left foot options. You know, Lenny Katow wouldn't look out of place in their back line. And they've just got these great, great players in terms of positional awareness and kicking. So to me, Debrasini better suits countering that because Lolotio's got a pretty accurate kick, but it's a bit of a pop kick compared uh, to Debrasini's boot. So, um, yeah, it seems a bit crazy to say, but I, I might actually back Debrasini to go again at 10. That's one vote for Debrasini. Ando, what's your take on this one? Yeah, I hate myself for saying it, but I think stick with Debrasini for another week in a row. Maybe bring Lolotio on a little bit earlier, but yeah, start with Jack. Massive two for Debrasini. And we've got one more for the Brumbies faithful from Andy. Hi, hi, Andy. Overall, what do you think? No, overall, do you think the Brumbies will benefit with a better defender on the wing, like an Ollie Sapsford, or an attack specialist like Corey Tool? And uh, which way do you go? Do you get a reliable Sapsford or you just get the raw pace? Look, I think um, from the post match presser, it's going to be touch and go whether Tool is going to be available or not, still going through the rehab protocols. So it wouldn't surprise me if we do see Sapsford on the wing again. Um, I thought he actually played very, very well this week. I thought he, as, as a makeshift winger, he did well. And he's been one of those players that's just been really reliable coming into the Brumbies setup, wherever they've needed him to be across the um, centres or the back line or, or outside centres. Um, so for me, it's Sapsford because if you're wanting to put, if you're wanting to play a kind of umbrella or rush defense, you need somebody that's really defensively intelligent to be able to pull that off. And I think Ikatao with the communication with Sapsford outside of him will be able to do that quite well. So yeah, I think probably Sapsford at my mind, just because I don't think Tool's going to be hundred percent fit. That's a fair take. And I, I hate to harp on these things as well, but 
Sapsford's another bloke who's gone across, played a bit of NPC across the ditch and come back a better player for it as well. They love him over at Hawks Bay. Mm. So it's good to see that versatility available now for an Aussie Super Rugby side. We'll finish up our locker room chat on the Reds as it should be done. And Rev, this one's for you. A bit of a statement to chew through and analyse and take your time on this one because I like this question <laughs> and statement coming in from Nick Wilson. It goes like this. For the Reds, I think coaching changeover played a part. Three new assistants came in this year with Blake doing defence, Hames doing the scrum, and Hayden as a coaching coordinator, breakdown, and squad development manager. New voices and systems takes time to have an impact, and it looks like that's taken most of the season. Rev, what do you make of that assessment, mate? I guess it's reasonably fair when you take into consideration some of the performances we had. And I think... Hames in particular got a lot of credit. The scrum really did seem to come around a fair bit at the end. Mm. You think back to, you know, what the Reds had to go through. No Tupo for the whole year. Harry Hooper, their best loose head, injured for the whole year. Um, Feo Fedawaika, who played 14 of their 15 matches last year, has gone overseas. So they missed a lot of their key players. Um, so the scrum did hold up quite well towards the back end of the season. And we did have some slightly improved defence. I'd say our games against... You know, the Crusaders, um, parts of the games against the Blues and then the two games against the Chiefs did look really nice defensively. So uh, part of that statement I do quite like. But there were still so many poor performances in between. Um, like the Fijian match, leaking that many points didn't need to happen against a team that, you know, was in a similar position to us. We were both desperate to make the finals and we needed to get that win to really be sure of it. Um, and while this is, you know, shown some improvement and we we're just talking about how nice it is looking to 2024 you kind of hope that all those guys stick around with whoever the new coach is you know for at least another two years because as i'm saying it takes such a long time like this Brumby system is so good because they've been there for so long it's not you know a matter of a season and a new coach comes and goes like everyone knows the setup so well um so i do really like this from nick i think it's a great point um but i do think yeah it a little bit more needs to be um, put to the coaches because it wasn't consistent even towards the back end. You know? I'll give you a follow-up then, and a general one as well on this glorious club that we call the Reds. <laughs> you got a blank check. Who are you signing as head coach for 2024 up at Ballymore? Um, now, the blank check, there's literally nothing written on it. It doesn't have an address to anyone. I can I can put whatever I want. Go nuts. Okay. Um, I am not considering a, um, a coach for that. I'll, I'll pick up any coach. I, I want, I want players. I want a marquee player to, <laughs> to hang my hat on, but if, if it's, if it's got to be a coach, I think, um, it's been spoken about a little bit, but Robbie Deans would be like quite a, quite an exciting pick. I think he, he's obviously got such great pedigree with, um, the Crusaders and I thought he did a good job with the, with the Wallabies, um, at a time where we just couldn't quite get the bulk of the squad to stick around together. He would be um, he'd be awesome to have there for what's a really great looking squad at the moment because this young group Thorns brought in they're all sort of early to mid twenties now that's a great bunch to mould for an experienced coach. I like it, and Nando, I raise this point because a familiar face was thrown up uh, by Michael Atkinson in his column for uh, Channel Nine the other day. Is Michael Checker <laughs> as his dream coach? 
for up at Queensland Reds. What is, how does that make you feel as a Tars fan, mate? mate? What would you think if something like that were to happen? Oh, I would hate it. I would hate it so much <laughs> just because, like, I love Checker for what he brought as a Waratahs coach. But I would hate to be on the other side of that brash and abrasive approach that he has with kind of media and coaching and stuff like that. Um, and also, his name gets thrown around bloody everywhere. Isn't he kind of specialist coaching at about four or five different NRL teams, <laughs> managing two international teams across two different codes? Like, I just don't believe he actually does anything that he's been hyped for actually doing um i don't know mate i think he just puts his name in a lot of places or people talk about him a lot but uh what i actually thought would be pretty fun for us to finish on gents is i took a quick screen grab of that post from james o'connor and there was a part of it that i thought would be really good for us to good for us to read as a way of kind of finishing off and reflecting upon the season and where um kind of things have been for the Reds. So from a team perspective, it wasn't our most graceful season either. We lacked cohesion and detail to begin with, but slowly built together and found a way of playing that we are proud of. Leaving it all out on the field Saturday against a very good Chiefs team. We'll be much better for this season, just as I know I am. I love this team. I love these men and I love the pride we have in this jersey. So I think Finishing on a Reds question and finishing on that from James Wilson. Uh, sorry, I was looking at Harry Wilson and James O'Connor there. From James O'Connor <laughs> is an absolutely brilliant way to finish the pod. Rev, it has been so good to have you back with us, mate. Thank you for jumping on. Hey, thanks for having me on. It was, um, you know, when you did it after a Reds loss, I'm like, is this a stitch up? But um, <laughs> it, it's a great Reds loss, isn't it? It's a fantastic way to end the season for them um, in in what was a, a really great season of Super Rugby Pacific. So, yeah, great to come on and chat footy and great to do it in a 2v1 Reds to Tars situation as well, I've got to say. And I've got to say, Lockie, you've been nothing but a gentleman despite the fact I've been outnumbered here as a Waratahs fan. Mate, thank you so much for joining us yet again. Always a pleasure, mate, and thank you to both of you. Looking forward to another wrap-up in the coming weeks and looking forward to hopefully talking some good news about the Brumbies further down the track. We'll have to jump on that bandwagon now. Oh, without a doubt, cheering on the Brumbies as they try to bring it home against the Chiefs this coming weekend. All right, thank you so much, team. Have a wonderful week and we will catch you later. Bye.